My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so grateful to have you. Um, As Troy said, we're going to tackle four chapters of Genesis today, so I promise to have you out by dinner. Um, But hey, we're feasting on the Word of God, right? So, preacher pun there. So, um, anyways, so just a couple, a quick recap. I want to just do a quick recap for those of you who maybe missed the first half. Today we're jumping into the second half of the book of Genesis. And so what we've seen so far in the first 11 chapters is what um, theologians call prime, uh, primeval history. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we see that God created, He formed and He filled His creation. Um, in Genesis 3, it all came unraveled because man chose what was right in his own eyes. And that's never a good idea because our eyes are busted and messed up. And so, so sin enters the world. It's, it's, everything is messed up. But in Genesis 3.15, we get a promise. We get a promise of a seed that is to come. A promise of a seed that is to come to, to rewrite the narrative, to fix the forming and the filling that we've seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, to bring us back to the garden. So that's key, and I think, I think that verse is the linchpin of Genesis, and really the Old Testament as a whole. Um, so hang on to that. And so in Genesis 4, we see that man's brokenness continues to flourish sin. Uh, it, it just brings its fruit through Cain murdering his brother Abel. Um, but chapter 4 ends with the birth of another seed, Seth, to where that Genesis 3.15 line continues, that promise continues. Um, Genesis 5 goes into a journey through ten generations from Adam's son Seth to Noah. Genesis 6 through 9 is the, is the story of Noah and how um, sin is going rampant upon the earth again. The Lord looks at his creation and, every, and all he sees is every thought and intention of the heart of man was evil continually. And so to, to remedy this situation, he wipes out humanity. Um, He wipes out everything, all created things, but he saves a remnant. He saves a remnant through Noah and his sons and his wife and their wives. And so you see the the continuation of this Genesis 3.15 promise come to fruition. And so uh, Noah builds a wife, builds a wife, builds an ark in faith, puts his family and two of every living creature upon it. Um, The flood happens as the Lord said it would. The flood subsides. God makes a covenant with Abram, not with Abram, with Noah, says, I'm never going to flood this this earth again. What's the covenant sign with Noah? The bow, that's right. And so he gives him the bow as that sign of that covenant, which we still have today. Um, And so he gives Noah a charge, the creation mandate, like he did with our first parents, be fruitful and multiply. He do, they do that, but they also want to do more than that. He gets off the ark, plants the vineyard, gets plastered, ends up naked. Uh, brother, uh, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham thinks it's funny, um, goes and gets his brothers. Brothers honor their father, cover up his nakedness. But Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan, for his disobedience. And so... It ends there. Noah's children spread all over the known world. Chapter 10 happens. Nations descended from Noah. We get that. And then Troy ended the last time with the Tower of Babel. Humanity has discovered bricks. They have made bricks. And so they wanted to elevate themselves to God. I want you to still see sin is alive and well. Genesis 3 is still wreaking havoc on creation, is still alive and well. They wanted to make a name for themselves, as the text says. We don't need God. We'll make our own city. We'll just go to God. We don't have to have Him come to us. They were living, they were not living in dependence 
upon God. However, God desires His gospel message to go forth, that promise of Genesis 3.15, promised seed to come. So He scatters, He confuses their language and scatters them all aboard abroad, which catches us up to where we are this morning. That was a, that was a mouthful. And so, today, Genesis 11, 10 through, um, Genesis 11, 10 through 32, we get a genealogy. So I'm not going to read the genealogy just for the sake of time. We're really going to hang out in chapter 12 this morning. But I do want to point out a few things about this genealogy. It'll be on the screen. And so after Babel, we see people spread east and west through trade, through adventure, through conquest, through all these different avenues. But when they spread, they took their wicked, pagan, idolatrous, Babylonian hearts with them. And so sin spread all over. The land is darkened by sin. But however, there is a remnant who is maintained for the worship of the true one God. We're going to see that in Melchizedek here in just a little bit. But overwhelmingly, the spreading of these idolatrous pagan people blanketed the earth in this darkness. And so now we have this scattered pagan people estranged from the one true God. How are we going to fix this? And it's here in this genealogy that we see another ten generations, just like with Seth in chapter 5. And this time it takes us from Noah's son Shem to Abram, showing how God is taking steps to preserve the line. Remember Genesis 3.15. He's preserving that line of that promised seed to come to rewrite the narrative. He does this this through Shem, but he also is going to preserve the line through one man's faith, just like he did with Noah. Remember, Noah built the ark in faith and preserved his family that preserved the line. And now Abram is going to do the same. And so, where am I at? So we have ten generations listed from Shem to Abram. And so now, technically according to the text, we have twenty generations from Adam to Abram. So now 20 generations have passed. And so a couple of things to note about this genealogy that I found interesting. First, there's a shift away from death towards the promise. How do I know this? This genealogy points to life and to expansion. If you notice, when Troy taught in chapter 5, remember the theme of each person? And he died. It's not listed here. It's not listed here in this genealogy. Yeah, they do die. All these people absolutely die. But, the, but Moses is wanting you to see, who, who penned this looking back from the Exodus, that even though they die, this is how life is going to be brought in through the patriarchs. And so, and then that's the first thing. And so the second thing I want you to see is this. The lifespan's cutting down. Remember? We, we saw people like living 900 years, 500 years, 600 years. This was common. But if you look at this genealogy, you see Peleg up there. He lived 239 years. That's only about half of what his father Eber lived, which was 464 years that we saw about in uh, chapter 10. That shows us that sin diminishes longevity. Sin's corrupting everything. It's ruining everything. And so, but there's great hope starting in chapter 27 because we end the primeval history and open up into patriarchal history. And it launches into the history of Abram. So one last thing I want you to note about this, um, this genealogy. If you look up there with my boy Peleg, 
I, I guess I'm saying that right. I have no idea. I found this super cool. In verse 16, he's the fifth in line of the line of Shem leading to Abram. And he's mentioned here in this genealogy, and his genealogy is also this exact genealogy almost, is listed in chapter 10, verses 21 through 25. It's like a mirror with one big exception to the mirror. In chapter 10, 1 through 25, it mentions Peleg's brother Joktan, but it doesn't do this here in Abram's line. Why is that? See, Joktan and his descendants are listed because they are because Joktan's is not listed here because Joktan's line led up to the cluster at Babel. And so while Pegleg's, Peleg's line gets to Pegleg, let's go with Pegleg, that's fun. While, Pe, while Pegleg's line gets to Abram, the hope of God's people. One theologian put it this way, I thought it was good. He said, this highlights the difference in the inner branches of the Shemite family. Talking about Shem. One leading to disgrace at Babel and the other leading to grace through Abram. And so this points, I say all that to say, this points to the fact that though pagan idolatry is rampant. It's everywhere. It seems like darkness is winning and spreading. There's hope in this new era through Abram. God has not forgotten his promise of Genesis 3.15 church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his covenant promise to his people. And so, according to the genealogy, Abram's arrived, or Abram arrives on the scene five generations after the Tower of Babel. And so now we get down in the text to Terah fathering Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, so Terah's the dad, Abram, Haran, uh, Nahor, and Haran are the kids, so his sons. And so like Shem, Abram is listed first in the genealogy. However, he's not the firstborn. He's listed there just like Shem was listed first. He's not the firstborn. He's listed first because of the prominence of who he is. And so where Shem, though, came from a father, Noah, who was listed as a man who was what? Righteous. That's not the same story for Abram. Terah was not a righteous man. He was actually quite the opposite, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want you to see some interesting things about this family. So Haran fathered a guy named Lot, and so Lot's going to be a guy who's going to issue have a bunch of issues for Abram in the future. We'll get to that later um, in the text. But he also, it says that he died. So Lot's father Haran died in the land of Ur, and so Nahor married Milcah, which is the orphan daughter of Haran. And if you're able to piece puzzle pieces together here, you're like, that don't sound right. Well, it's not right because it's his niece. Got a little bit of Kentucky going on up in here. No offense if you're from Kentucky. You can say the same for Alabama. I'm just saying. But anyways, we got a little bit of weirdness going on up in here, but it gets a little bit weirder, okay? So we see Abram and Sarah are introduced. So two things to note about them. We learn in chapter 20 that Terah's daughter is... Sarah. So now Abram is married to his half-sister. Awesome. Um, so the, they leave that part out of Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham, the incestuous dude. Uh, no, that, nobody wants to sing that part. Nobody wants that in their family tree, okay? But anyways, God, that was not in my notes. I'm sorry. That came up. That's why I have notes. Okay, and so this is a big deal, though, um, it's because Abram's going to 
throw his wife out there to other dudes, and, and that's going to play a role into that. And then another thing that we see about her is we can learn that, that she's barren. And this is going to be, play a big deal into the God's covenant promise with Abram. Um, it's going to be a big challenge for Abram's faith. His wife can't have kids. How is he going to be a father of many nations if his wife can't have kids? But that's for another sermon for another day. Troy hit that next week. And so the key thing, though, what I want you to see about this text that I found fascinating is God's grace in this broken family of where they came from. Ur says they came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was the leading center of lunar religion. This ancient place in Mesopotamia, which Mesopotamia, this, what's cool about this, just getting into patriarchal history, this is one of the first known uh, ancient civilizations of modern history was Mesopotamia. So this place in ancient Mesopotamia had a huge ziggurat, which is a big temple type thing, dedicated to worshiping the moon god Nana. It's N-A-N-N-A. I'm going to go with Nana. It looks like Nana to me. And we also find out through archaeology and history that human sacrifice also took place here to appease the gods. This is Abram's hood. This is where he's coming from. These are his people. And if you're wondering if Abram's family bought into this hot garbage, Joshua gives us a little picture in Genesis, uh, Genesis, Joshua 24, verse 2. He says, Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, they served other gods. Don't miss that. That's a big deal. So Abram's family, and most likely Abram himself, were pagans. Moon-worshipping, polytheistic, idolatrous pagans. Father Abraham. That's where he came from. And so as a moon worshiper, Abram and his family would have stood atop this ziggurat and offered sacrifices to these false gods for years and years and years. And I say this to say, and I'm just drawing a conclusion here. Could be wrong, but I don't know. I say this to say I find it fascinating that God chose this pagan star worshiper to be a vessel of his covenant promises. Because we're going to find out next week in Genesis chapter 15, God's going to take Abram outside and he's going to say, Hey, Abram, look up to the heavens. Look at the what? The stars. (laughs) This is good. Look at the stars. I can just picture this, man. Hey, Abram, you know those stars that you spent years worshiping, that you spent years offering sacrifices to? Let me tell you this. I'm the God who hung those stars in place. And I'm the God who's going to give you and your barren wife descendants as numerous as the stars to carry out my Genesis 3.15 promise to redeem the whole thing. Coincidence that Abram was a star worshiper and God used stars as an object lesson to teach him about how he's going to carry out his promises? Maybe. Or maybe it's... I think it's as much of a coincidence as McDonald's ice cream machines breaking every night at 8 p.m. when I want to make flurry. I'm just saying. And I point, I point all that out to say this, and I, and I think we can get this from the text. No one is outside of God's ability to grasp them. Let me say that again. 
Nobody is outside of God's ability to grasp them, to use them for His glory and His purposes. Nobody. He can do quite literally what He wants with whom He wants to carry out His divine purposes. And that's good news. And so my question for you, and maybe you've been in this, maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I don't know the Scriptures. I don't know this God who you're talking about. I don't think He would have anything to do with me. Abram Abraham would encourage you to think otherwise. Or believer, maybe you're you're thinking through considering not building intentional gospel relationships with someone because maybe they're just too wrapped up in that sin. They're too far gone, man. I I don't know if I can be seen with it. I just don't know about that. Abram would plead with you to reconsider, to enter into those relationships. So, continuing on. Verses 31 and 32, look with me at this. It says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and son, Abram, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they, came, when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Canaan. So if you were to read these first two verses, or read those two verses in a silo, you would conclude that Terah, the, the pagan dad, was the one who took the initiative to lead their family into the promised land, to take that, initi- that initiative of faith to go. But that's not the, the Old Testament, the New Testament. It just doesn't leave room for that. And where do I get that from? So we, we learn about this. We learn that it was Abram, when he was in Ur, who took the initiative to move his family after God called him. Stephen tells us this. Stephen's talking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, and he recalls this moment. And he says this. He said, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, while he was in Ur, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went from out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran after his father died, and God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Ur was this place that was barren in the knowledge of God, of the one true God. It was a dark, pagan place. But it was there that Abram saw the glory of the Lord and heard the call to leave and to go to a land that God would show him. And he convinced his pagan father, Terah, to go with him. It's a big deal. It's not the other way around. But we know that once they got to Haran, which we find out in history, Haran was another place of moon worship. His dad wouldn't leave. Got him to move once, but he wouldn't keep going. And so it was there that Terah would stay, and Abram would honor his father and stay until his death. And then he departed from there to the promised land. And so now we get to Abram's call, his promise, and his screw-up. Look with me in chapter 12. Verses 1 through 4 says this. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your fa- and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I don't want you to just read that and brush over 
the huge act of faith that this was for Abram. This is a big deal, man. It's a huge deal for him. Keep in mind, like if he's this moon worshiper, he's a, he's a pagan. He, he was advanced in age. He was wealthy. He was settled in his own little world. He was settled, man. He's like retirement age. He was going to chill. He lived the good, the good life. He was the only one in his family and in this culture who heard God's word to go. However, on the basis of hearing alone, he risked everything he had to follow God. He left his people. He left his family. Everything the culture would prize, he upped and left. And Abram heard God's call. And he became so confident that God would follow through and lead him to a land where he would establish a people, where he would carry out these promises, that it was transposed in a conviction for Abram in the present. And this led Abram to immediate obedience, to go, to just step out and go. His obedience was an outward evidence of an inward faith. Hebrews tells us this, which adds even more weight to the situation. Hebrews 11.8 tells us that Abram, in his obeying and going, he went not knowing where he was going. He didn't know he was going to Canaan. He just said, hey, Abram, I want you to go. I'm going to do these things through you, and I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where you're going until later. And he goes. It's big. It's a big deal. And this is what biblical faith does. It steps out in confidence of the one who has called you. As the psalmist says, confidence in the one who keeps you and neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is the shade on your right hand. He leads you in paths of righteousness. We could go on and on through the psalms. Faith and obedience are inseparable and our relationship to God. The whole book of James screams this in our face. Faith and obedience are inseparable. You can't say, I, I, have, I just have faith and just, and just chill. and not. That's awesome. What is it leading you to do? What is it producing in you? Biblical faith produces something in us. Faith steps out. And we see this in Noah as well as Abram. Think about it. When Noah was building a massive boat and putting two animals on it, I'm sure everybody was like, dude, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you are nuts. But he stepped out in faith, not caring what, the, what men said. Abram, you're going to leave all of this? Abram, what are you doing? Faith steps out. And it also shows that God is producing a faith within them to carry out His purposes of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. One thing I want you to note, the way Abram's faith began in Ur is the same way that it continues to play out for him. Later in chapter 15, verse 6, we're going to see this. It said, He believed the Lord, referring to Abram, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Don't get this confused, church. It's the same, this is the same faith by which Abram is going to receive his righteousness. Faith does not 
earn righteousness. Let me say that again. Faith does not earn righteousness. It receives righteousness. There's a big difference there. It's not how much faith can I muster up in myself to earn God's affection and love. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, Paul hits it all nail on the head. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of what? Your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Faith is a gift produced in us from God for God. And so Abram was asked to believe the bare word of God, to forsake all, to forsake the people he knew, his family, etc., and to be obedient to that which he was called to do. And church, this same call is akin to every believer in this room. Jesus tells us, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Mark 8, 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Church, and I, I say this with you, not at you. When the Lord calls us, He does not guarantee us rainbows and unicorns. He doesn't promise us health, wealth, prosperity. Heck, He doesn't even promise us normal, whatever that is. He doesn't promise us comfortability. And like Abram, sometimes He doesn't even tell us what it will be like. Jesus never promises us a smooth ride here on earth, that all of our problems will be solved, that it will have peace on earth, an easy life. But what he does call us to is to trust in his word alone. That's what he does call us to. His word tells us that if we want to follow him, Jesus tells us it's an invitation to what? Deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow him. Here, here's, and here's what he does promise us though, church, in his word. He does promise us that wherever he calls us, that he'll go with us too. Matthew 28, 20. We just read it and we just saw it in that video. He promises to go with us. And then he also promises us in Revelation that he will ultimately come and take us to be with him. We know how the story ends. And so when we act in faith, we, we know how it works out for us, man. And so not only about the stuff about faith with Abram, but he also had these rich promises from God. I'm going to make you a great nation, Abram. I'm I'm going to make your name great. But he would never fully experience the ultimate fulfillment of that through his offspring. First in believing Israel and then in the church as Galatians 3 talks about. And not only would Abram not see the full extent of the promise, but the first half of the personal blessing smacks Abram right in the face. I've already hit on that. Hey, Abram, I'm going to make your name great, but I'm, also, I'm, going to, I'm going to bless the nations through. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abram. What? My wife is barren. She can't have kids. What are you talking about? But nonetheless, Abram believes in the dark. He steps out in the dark. And so, 
Also, God promises to make his name great. This is pretty interesting. And I find it ironic that it comes right after the Tower of Babel. Remember we just saw with, in Babel, these people were trying to do what? Trying to make a name for themselves, right? God looks at Abram and he says, I'm going to gift you with a great name. I'm going to give it to you. And later we learn in chapter 17 that kings are going to come through Abram. And then we know the whole grand picture that the king of kings, the name that is above every name, is going to come through Abram's line. And I think we can learn something here. A great name is one built on radical obedience and dependence on God, not, self, not self-serving conceitedness. Look, we're, we're just as guilty as Babel. I'm just as guilty as the Babylonians, man. Time and time again, we try to make our names for ourselves through what we can produce, how much knowledge we can attain, flexing how much gifting we have in areas to make a name for ourselves. But in the metrics of the kingdom of God, making a name for yourself or a great name is radical obedience, is denying yourself and following God. That's how you get a great name for yourself. And so we see these blessings, these personal blessings, but in verse 3 we also see this global blessing of promise. God tells Abram that he will bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him. We see this play out time and time again throughout the Scriptures. Melchizedek is blessed for honoring Abram. We're going to find out next week that Hagar is cut off from Abram's family because she despised Sarah. She's, dis- she's cut off. He dishonors, dishonors Abram. This global blessing, though, finds its ultimate end in Christ. We, we find that out in the New Testament. Finds its ultimate end in Jesus. He was the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, and this blessing went out to all the people through him, which led Paul to pen this in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9. Catch this. This is big. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the gospel, the good news, was announced 4,000 years ago to Abram in the dark pagan Ur where the moon god is being worshipped and And human sacrifices are taking place in the background. It's a big deal. It's huge. And then we see Abram act out in faith by taking this conquest. Look with me in verses 5 through 9. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's big. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. 
Nejeb. We're going to go with that. Um, and so Abram begins his sojourn, leaving all that he's known, and he begins this journey. And I'm about to show you a map. Actually, you can go ahead and throw that map up there, um, Andrew. This map is an 800-mile journey that Abram and his family would have traveled on, all the way from Ur, up through Babylon, up to Haran, all the way down to Bethel. And you see the land of Canaan over here on the left by the Mediterranean Sea. We have Bethel. I is not listed on the map. It's right on the, uh, the right side of Bethel right there. And then you got going down to Egypt, which we'll get to in just a minute. And so, so he begins this 800-mile trek. In Hebrews 11, 9 through 10, the author of Hebrews paints this picture for us. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, giving up everything he had to live in a tent with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram's mind was fixed on the promise that when he his fix on the promise of God that he was going to give him this land, that it was going to be glorious, he was going to bless the nations through Abram. And then when Abram finally makes this 800-mile journey to the land, he lands in the land, and there's people there that are worshiping God, and they love Yahweh, and everything's hunky-dory. No, that's not what the text says. And when he gets there, there are Canaanites in the land. A bunch of pagan idolaters inhabit the land. And this is going to show us that there's going to be opposition in this land that's been promised to Abram. And this is going to continue on in his line of faith. It's going to continue through his descendants. We're going to see it play out in Joshua. The Canaanites are occupying this area. But it's here that the Lord appeared to Abram. That's, That's interesting. So, so far, all he's had is a visual, uh, not a visual, a, hear, a word from the Lord. The Lord spoke to him, and now the Lord appears to him. And so the Lord, Abram, who had followed his unseen God to an undone, unknown destination, is granted a vision of his God. And Abram's response was what? He built an altar. He built an altar to the Lord. He worshipped. In this moment, he worshipped. It's like if, if, if looking out all these, these pagan people, he's come, from, he's come from the pagan land. There's pagans in the promised land. If anything is going to bring this to, bring this to, through, to fruition, tongue-tied, sorry, it's going to be the Lord. And so he spends his life worshiping, and this becomes a common theme with Abram that you'll see in the text. Everywhere he went, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon his name. He lived a life of worship. And so, we look at Abram, like, man, Abram's got this awesome faith. Wish my faith was like Abram's. He stepped out into utter darkness, not knowing where he was going. God's called him out of this darkness. There's darkness in the land. It's great faith. It's going to work out. And then we get to verse 10. Abram screw up. And there was a famine in the land. Famine breaks out. And so it seems to be all great and it's going good until trial happens. And there's famine in the land. And so faith is always tested, church. 
Your faith will always, always be tested. How do I know that? Because the Word of God promises that. Look with me in James 1, 1 and 2. You don't have to flip there. You you can if you want. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that they will be testing, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so faithful Abraham who has left it all to follow the bare word of God on this 800-mile journey, while he is inspecting the land, he stumbles. Or rather, he is starved out of the land. Look me on in verse 11. So, when he was about to enter... When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. So, say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, or harem. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And so, Abram, all Abram was planning to do was to just go down to Egypt temporarily until the famine famine passed. He wasn't abandoning the promised land. If he was going to abandon the promised land, he just went back home. Could have went back home to earth. And went back to darkness. But he didn't do that. He, he just wanted to slip down into Egypt where, where there was food and water. And, and he was just going to let it pass by and he was going to go back. That was the natural thing for Abram to do. Was to go to Egypt. But herein is where the problem lies. The natural thing was not the right thing to do. It was not the right thing, the not the right thing for him to act on. And so there's no mention in the text. And this is the problem. There's no mention in the text of Abram seeking the will of the Lord in the matter. Not a mention of it. There's no prayer. There's no, there's no altar. There's, there, there's no him seeking when the famine happens. And so famine produced fear of starvation, and Abram instinctively active, acted on his fear instead of seeking the Lord. There's hints of Genesis 3 all in this. Abram did what was right in his own eyes. Egypt's not that big of a deal. We'll just slip down there. It'll be fine. It'll be kosher. It'll work out. And we'll go back. When the famine passes, it'll be good. And so, Abram didn't deny God in this moment. He just forgot God. He forgot how good he is. And so, we learn that apparently his wife is attractive. Um, and Abram knew that the Egyptians would kill him and take the, his wife for themselves if, if they didn't try to disguise it some way. And so... He gets her to tell a half lie. I mean, remember, it's only a half lie because she was technically his half sister. So now the song is running through my head. This is so messed up. Um, anyway, so, anyways, what Abram didn't foresee, though, was that his wife was going to be taken into Pharaoh's harem. That he was, she was going to be taken into the harem to be treated however Pharaoh liked, just as another, another piece for Pharaoh. He didn't foresee that happening. 
And so, I'm sure when this happened, instant regret set in. And, and what happened, this is what happens, though, when we try to take the will of our life and put God in the back seat. It doesn't work out well for us. It doesn't. By living by our, our sight and not by faith. Abram was living in this moment as if God didn't exist. And that's when faith falters. Faith falters when, when the object is forgotten or replaced. Our faith falters when we forget the object of our faith or replace it with ourselves, in Abram's case. I got this. Look, look, I, Sarah, I got this plan. You'll say, you're, you're my sister. It's going to work out. It's all going to be kosher. We're going to go down here. We're going to eat. We're, we're, we're going to go down to Egypt. Like, we're not... We haven't sought the Lord on it, but we're going to do it. It's going to work out. I, I'm pretty tech savvy. I'm pretty wealthy. You know, I, I, got, I know how to do stuff. And so he was resting in his own abilities. And so on top of all this, we see that Pharaoh is pleased with Sarah, and he starts lavishing Abram with gifts, making him more and more rich. In this day, female donkeys, they were much more easy to tame. And so him giving these to Abram was really like him giving him a Lamborghini of the day. Like, here, take this, you know, just see him like bumping in their uh, female donkeys. And so this, this was a big deal and, and made Abram way more rich. And so this just added to the weight of the situation. So faithless and deceitful Abram was benefiting on luxurious items while his wife spent fearful days and sketchy nights in Pharaoh's harem. Do you feel the weight that this is probably mounting up upon him? And so it just seems like it's all lost. But grace still abounds. Grace still abounds. God remembers his promise. Look at me in the text. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so God was fulfilling his promise to curse those who dishonor Abram. Do you see the consistent grace playing out with inconsistent people? You see this time and time again play out in the Scriptures. And so what's even more ironic is Pharaoh, the polytheistic pagan who worships all kind of gods, takes the moral high ground in the situation. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife, dude? Like, now I've got bulls and skin diseases because you didn't tell me. Take her and go. Can you imagine the shame that Abram feels in this moment? Abram is painted as the sinner, and Pharaoh's painted as the saint. But there's more grace. There's more grace. Look in verse chapter 13. And so Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. And now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I. Look at this in verse 4. He went to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. There's more grace. Abram leaves Egypt with his tail in between his legs. 
full of shame, full of regret, I'm sure. But the grace is that God has not left him. The Genesis 3.15 promise still stands. And in 13 verse 4 at Bethel, Abram returned to where he had made an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram in this moment renewed his spiritual connection with God and he wanted to walk in obedience with God again. And it's here in dark pagan Canaan that Abram proclaimed Yahweh as Lord. So what I want you to see and walk away with today, if nothing else, is that Abram was a great, a man of great faith. And yet this man of great faith failed. Even the best human faith picture that we have is full of holes. He forgot how great his God was and forgetting he turned to his own devices. You know who else does that? We do. I do. You do. But God in his goodness allowed this to happen to Abram. All a part of his greater plan to happen through Abram. And so, for the believer, those who have trusted in Jesus, you can expect trials as a part of God's plan. You just can't. James promises it. Just as they were for Christ. Christ went through trials too. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that Christ was made perfect through suffering. And what I want you to see is that Genesis chapter 12 is really all about Jesus. It really is all about Him. It's all about Him. It all points to Him. I say this because Paul reveals it to us that the promise of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 verse 7, let me just recall that for you. He's in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and He said, to your offspring I will give this land. Paul tells us that this offspring that, that that Moses is talking about here is singular in nature. It's not plural. It's singular. It's referring to the seed, the Genesis 3.15 promise, the one who's going to rewrite the narrative. This is good. Hang in there. So Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 this, Now the promise promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's big. And so Abram isn't the hero of the story. Abram is a conduit to the hero of the story, namely Christ. The Pharisees could never grasp this though. How do I know that? You go to John chapter 8. There's this fascinating passage happening where the the Pharisees are debating with Jesus. If you don't know who Pharisees are, they were the religious leaders of the time. They they took themselves way too seriously and didn't take God seriously enough. And so they're arguing with Jesus and they, they, they call Him possessed. And Jesus is like, well, if anyone's possessed, you are because your daddy's the devil. Mic drop moment for Jesus. But in verses 57 through 58, something fascinating happens. In verse 53, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And in verse 57, they go on to say, you are not 50 years old and and you've seen Abraham? And in verse 58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
that lock unlocks the whole story. Before Abraham was, I am. Pharisees, I was the one who hung the stars that Abram worshipped when he was a pagan. I was there when he was brought out of the pagan darkness in Ur and brought into the land. I was there when he sojourned 800 miles into the land of Canaan. I was there, the one, I was the one preserving him when he was in, when he was faithless in Egypt. I was there doing all of that. Christ is the one through whom the world will be blessed. Christ is the one who through, who th- through whom the global blessings will be fulfilled. Christ is the ultimate heir of Abraham. Do you don't miss Jesus in this passage? Jesus never stumbled when trials came. Jesus' faith never wavered. Jesus did not look to his own devices, but only to the will of his father. Abram was a man of great faith, but Jesus was a perfect man of perfect faith. And Abram left his family, his home and family in Ur to go to an unknown dark, from a dark land in Ur to an unknown land. But Jesus left heaven in obedience to the Father to come to a dark earth to rescue dark people, to die on a dark cross for dark people so that they could be seen as righteous and in the light through his work. On their behalf. And three days later, he rose from the dead, what we just celebrated last week, defeating sin, defeating death in his resurrection, so that we who are in Abram can have hope in the ultimate fulfillment of the seed, the Genesis 3.15 promise. Don't miss it. It truly is all about Jesus. Jesus' life was in faith and by faith from beginning to end. So this morning, you don't need five principles to have a better faith like Abram. What you need, the, the measure of your faith is not what vindicates you. The object of your faith is what saves you. And the object of biblical regenerative faith is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You don't need more principles. You need Jesus. And that's it. And so, Ben, you can come on back up. And so my question for you, believer, is this, this morning. Where is God calling you? Is God, God's calling you to something. How is he calling you? Are, are you going to walk in obedience? Are you going to step out in faith? Or maybe you have, and maybe you've run away from it. Maybe you've deserted your calling. Maybe you're fearful of your calling. And maybe today you need to return to the altar and renew that obedience to the Lord. An unbeliever. Man, I'm sure today was like drinking out out of a fire hydrant. But Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. He is the one in whom all our hope rests. He is the one through whom salvation comes. He is the one through whom hope is restored. He is the promised seed of Genesis chapter 12. He's the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He's the one that's going to rewrite the narrative. And so you might be like, well, what about chapters 13 and 14? Unless you want to stay to (laughs) 3 o'clock, we're going to have to do a quick... um, Cliff Notes version of this. And so, here is your Genesis 13 and 14. So you can go back and study this for yourself. Here's chapter 13 in a nutshell. 
Lot, who's been leeching off of Abram's wealth so that both men are rich. He's kind of like the guy in a group project that gets the credit and does nothing. Um, not, there's not enough room in the land for everyone's people and livestock. Abram's and Lot's herdmen, they begin to have strife between one another because of space. Abram doesn't want strife between them because they're family. Abram and Lot separate and lets Lot pick where he wants to go first. Abram landed in Canaan and Lot settled or chose Sodom. Horrible move. We'll get to that later. Uh, Lord reminded Abram that he will give him the land. Chapter 14. Lot's chilling in Sodom. Revolt goes down between some kings. Lot gets caught up in the mix and is taken captive. Someone escapes and goes and informs Abram about his nephew who's in captivity. Abram goes and rescues his nephew Lot and his people. On the way back, a guy named Melchizedek, which name means king of righteousness... We learn that Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God, and he is the king of Salem, which is going to become Jerusalem. This is good. And then he brings out bread and wine to Abram after his victory over his enemies. Kind of like an allusion to communion to me. Abram ties a tenth of everything he has to this Melchizedek. Go check out Hebrews chapter 7 and please hit me up for coffee so that I can dive in with this, to this with you this week. I would love to get into this. But man, just to give you a nutshell, I, I don't think this is a pre-incarnate Christ, but I definitely think it is a type of a Christ, a picture of the Christ to come who was the perfect king and priest for us. So that is four chapters of Genesis in, I don't even know how long it's been, but... Thanks for hanging in there. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God that we love. Um, We're prone to to step back into darkness whenever you've pushed us to the light. But Lord, you were faithful. You were faithful to us when we were inconsistent towards you. In your son, we have redemption, we have hope, we have, we have hope through his work on the cross for our, on our behalf. Lord, help us to rest in the shadow of Jesus' cross and help us to walk in obedience that that cross has purchased for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.